Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is uh, Mike, and it's another truth one. Man's journey find it, and I found it, and my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, once again, we have uh, David Charles on from. Uh, Providence Reformed Baptist Church, local here in my neck of the woods, and we're going to be discussing uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1677-1689, and it should be a a very interesting journey. Before I get going on this, and I apologize, Dave, but I just got an email from uh, Richard Bennett, and this is for those listening. Maybe I have uh, Richard on prayers. It looks to me like he's still having problems with people uh, hacking his computer, and he's having health issues with his stomach and bowels, and uh, he's seen a specialist on Wednesday. So he asked if uh, I keep him in prayers, and that uh, as, as things settle down, he said, contact me about the interview. So won't be having this week, but uh, let's pray for Richard. He's a brother in Christ. So. That man's gone through a lot. God's really yeah, been there for him. So, anyways, uh, we already did the formalities earlier before the show, but just for everyone else, Dave, how are you doing? <laughs> well, Michael, it's Monday, but I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Uh, I'm hanging in there. Uh, <laughs> my legs, like I told you, my MS, the legs are, are aching, but uh, I don't have my son today, so I could I have a, a little rest, respite. So. <laughs> I had it for three days straight. Will Chase, my wife had a good time with him yesterday. He's a, he's a good he's a good boy. And uh, it's funny he was uh, uh, after uh, church. And all, I don't know that we uh, he was singing songs about Jesus. So yeah, nice, very nice. So yeah, um, yeah. We do want to. We're going to talk I'm a little sorry. about. Yeah, I want to talk about the the London Confession um, and. Uh, uh, did we really, can we do a little bit more about the history and um, before we go into chapter one? About our, we talked about kind of going through the um, the chapters of this, but I was you know find it interesting that this history of this uh, why did it come about again and what was going on in Great and uh, in Britain at the time or England. Yeah, well, you know, as you there when you, you gave the title 1689-1677, it was actually first written in 1677, and then later again uh, published um, in 1689. There was some change politically there in England that made it um, more advisable to publish it in 1689. Uh, it was, and it represents. Here's what's really fascinating about it: it represents uh, close to a hundred different Baptist churches. If, if you ever get, uh, if you, 
if you have a hard copy of the Baptist Confession of Faith, a lot of times in the back, it will show the, the men from these different churches that signed it. And uh, that's that's a really fascinating accomplishment. If you can get 100 Baptist pastors to agree about anything anymore, let alone something as comprehensive as our Confession of Faith, it's, it's a real feat. There's, there's, there's actually talk often now of trying to get a more modernized confession of faith that would address some of the issues that have come uh, six to, since the 1677. And um, it's just not real hopeful that we would ever be able to do anything like that because we just I don't think we could get that kind of unanimity as they did there in 1689. What, what, uh, caused, what caused that unity, that unity of faith there back then? Well, you know, Michael, that's a good question, and one that would, would merit, frankly, a, a dissertation to, <laughs> to really discover. But one of the things I think they lived at a time when um, these men were, they were men of the Bible, they were scholars, you and I just brief, briefly, we were we were speaking of Plagius and Augustine. These men knew the they they knew well the patristics, the early church fathers. Uh, they were well versed in uh, classic classic theism, and uh, they were committed to the truth. And uh, but they were committed to the truth not just in any kind of an abstract way. These were churchmen. And so I think it was just a unique uh, a point in church history. Of course, they had the benefit of the two earlier confessions. I think I mentioned it last time, the, the Presbyterian Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith that came about in the, the mid-1640s. And then uh, in 1658, there was the Congregational um uh, confession of Faith called the Savoy Declaration. Uh, John John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, two giant, uh, particularly John Owen, he's often called the Prince of Puritans. John Owen had a, his hand in the, the Savoy. So they had the benefit of those two previous confessions of faith, much of which has been bought over wholesale into the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So they had they had a benefit of, of just, a, it was a confluence of many wonderful things that came together um, I think, of course, the, the hand of God and Providence uh, orchestrating things brought it together so that the, we could have something like the, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. That's interesting. And I see in the back of this uh, London, uh, the, the little pamphlet that uh, I got from your church, it looks like they have, just uh, as you were saying there, uh, yeah, the signatures of the many of uh, the uh, the ministers at the time and the pastors. Now, one of the things that's uh, interesting is uh, what was going on in England historically with the Church of England and and uh, the threat that they they felt by the Puritans and these the Baptist churches. Uh, do you know much about that? Well, yeah, you know, one of the um, the unfortunate, like back there in the back, it, 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 in the, the, the signatures, it says, um, we the ministers and messengers of concerned up toward 100 baptized churches denying Arminianism. 
one of the things that not only they denied Arminianism, but again, this is just one of the realities of history. Uh, even to this day, many Baptists believe that the Baptists are to be traced back to what a group of men, uh, churches, uh, various individuals called Anabaptists. And, and, and in fact, the Baptists actually were, they are not, they don't, aren't traced back to the Anabaptists, although, with, because, you ever heard that term, Michael, the Anabaptists? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's called the uh, Radical Reformation. And now, look, let me say up front, many of the, many of the Anabaptists were godly, God-fearing, Bible-believing people, to be sure. But there was also, as, as I said, sometimes called the Radical Reformation. Some of them were revolutionaries and um, at the time made much of England, much of Europe even, nervous. The Anabaptists made them nervous because they were considered to be revolutionaries. Much much in the same way we might kind of look with suspicion with someone like David Koresh. Not to say that all the Anabaptists were like David Koresh, but it just made people nervous. So the Baptists uh, would actually have to, to labor hard to say, look, we're not Anabaptists. Well, in spite of that, uh, many of the, the Baptists, uh, they were they were thrown into jail. John, John Bunyan was thrown into jail because he, he refused to uh, not, he, he refused to get a license to preach, so he spent 14 years, upwards towards 14 years, and might have been 12 years in prison. And um, Benjamin Keach, who had a hand in the, the London Baptist Confession faith, he was arrested and put in the stocks on many occasions, and they burned his books. So uh, they they had to distance themselves. Now that that's one of the reasons I'm sure that they said, "Look, we're going to we're going to use the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, Confession of Faith. We're going to use those so that so that everyone understands that theologically." We are on the same field. We're, we would be willing to lock arms with these reformed men on many issues. So, again, they, they had this kind of a, you know, they had this struggle, as, I think, you, as you said, with other Puritans, even, and with the Church of England, because of this uh, association with the Anabaptists. Right. The, the so-called radical. You know, again, it's an interesting thing. A lot of people, they want to look at the Anabaptists and think that they, they represent, there's a monolithic, unified, and there isn't. There were some Anabaptists, uh, there were some Anabaptists like Baptists who believed that, along, you know, because the Bible teaches that you need to be baptized as a believer by immersion. Uh, but there were some Anabaptists that denied that they didn't, they rejected both Lord's Supper and baptism. So they were all over the board. And uh, so the, the Baptists would have to oftentimes labor to say, look, we're not Anabaptists. We, we are. And, we, and, they, and, and here's something else is the Baptists, like the, uh, like the, in the Bible, you, you, you discover in the Bible that Christians, we didn't call ourselves Christians first. Others called us Christians. And we were glad to take that name. Uh, but the Baptists, in the same way, they didn't call themselves Baptists. Other people called themselves Baptists. And eventually, the, the name just stuck. 
Right. Now, do you know much about the back in England at the time too? The connection with uh, you know the the, the royalty, uh, Catholicism, and the Church of England, and of course, we know when you go back to this Arminius attitude that they have, or this approach of uh, free will uh, compared to what the many of the Baptists were saying about saved by grace through faith and uh, the election and stuff like that. These are things that were of a great offense and were used against the Baptists politically um, as a way to try to stifle it, meaning that the Church of England and the Catholic element in uh, England were, they felt threatened by the Baptists themselves. Do you know, what, do you know much well, about the, that? Well, you know, the, um, of course, that, that, you know, English histories very difficult for me because there's you know you have one monarch that comes and then another monarch that comes this family and then that family but but in in rough outline uh you know of course at that time whoever if the magistrate was a lutheran then then the state was was lutheran if the magistrate was was protestant reformed then the state would be or the rest of the state would be as well that was just the reality now the baptists uh, along with other some Anabaptists, that's where we get a very clear um, statement on, you know, look, although the magistrate is is, organized, is is an arm of God, Luther talked about the left hand and the right hand of of, of, of Christ in terms of authority, and we recognize that the, the magistrate is a, a minister of good for the state, yet he, he has no place in interfering in the affairs of of the church, um, which again that that's going to draw some heat because, as you said at the time, it was the the, the Church of England, the, the Episcopal Church or whatever you want to call it, had as the head. It's really an interesting thing, Michael. You know the the, the Reformation came to Europe as and then. And women started reading their Bibles, and the church in various places began to reform. It came to England in a very unique way, in that King Henry VIII he he wanted a male heir. heir. He he saw for the what he believed what would be best for his kingdom would be that he'd have a male heir. And of course, you know he had a wife who couldn't but didn't bear bear him a male heir, so he wanted to divorce her, and he couldn't get a divorce. And the Pope wouldn't let him divorce. And so there's all this intrigue. And so he eventually just named himself as the head of the church. <laughs> I'm the head of the church. And then he got a divorce, right? And uh, what's interesting, now a lot of people don't know this. King Henry VIII, he was, he was, a, he was thoroughly committed to the Roman Catholic Church. As a matter of fact, the Pope at one time actually named him the defender of the faith because he wrote against Martin Luther. Right. He wrote a tome against Martin Luther, but he was more committed to his kingdom than he was to Rome, so he named himself the head of the church. Well, um, he also introduced into churches English Bibles, and people started reading their English Bibles, and I don't... I don't recall, I don't believe that each person had their own Bibles, but the English Bible was then there in the church. And as people began to read their Bibles, they called 
in due course, there was a call for the church for to have a, a more thorough reformation. And in particular, as it touches upon on worship. And so there were, there, were, there were these men who kept calling for a purification of the church, to purify the church, to get rid of the remnants of Rome. And, and in due course time, just like Baptists and the Christians in the first century, people started calling these men who wanted a pure form of worship, they called them Puritans. Now, they just wanted the church to, to reform, to, to be more pure. But then there were men amongst these Puritans who realized the church is never going to reform. It's not going to purify the way we want it to. Uh, King, King, um, King James I, he came when he came to England. The Puritans had hoped that he would bring about reformation, but he made it clear that he did not intend on changing the structure of the church, that he was still going to be the head of the church. Well, so there were these men who said, Let's, we just have to separate. We just need to separate from the church. They're called separatists. Mm-hmm. And it was out of that group of men that Baptist churches first started uh, being organized out of the separatists. So if, you could, so if you could follow that, if your listeners could follow, there was the Church of England that left Rome through King Henry VIII. Uh, eventually there were men who wanted to purify the church. And... Um, then there were out of that men who said, look, the church is not going to, it's just never going to, it's not going to reform the way we want it to, so they separated. And it was out of these separatists, these Puritans, these separatists, the Baptist churches started to form. All right. I hope I didn't lose you and your listeners on all that. Oh, no, actually, the, my listeners are all very good about their history, so, and church history, so, so there's no yeah. problem. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, and it's interesting too that this whole dynamics, because uh, you know, <laughs> it's amazing how our, our Lord works. But uh, because of these separatists, it's what we have here now, right? And the end of the day, we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> uh, oh, guest three wants to know what's the, what divisions were the Congregationalists or the Puritans? Does that make sense? What division well, were the Catholic, the Congregationalists and the Puritans? Yeah, and I'm sorry about uh, spending uh, a little time on the history, but I think no, it's no, that's fine. no, that's fine. It's no, that's logical to do this, you know, before we get into. Yeah, this. no, no, that's fine. Um, uh, the the well, the Puritans, as I said, they they actually uh, they wanted to purify the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and um, and that, and of course there were some of those that eventually left England. They ended up some of them in, 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 on the continent, and then eventually some of them, they came to the New World. They came to the New World, and the, the Congregationalists were a part of all that. that now, I can't, you know, John Owen was a Puritan, Thomas Goodwin was a Puritan, which means, and then, then they were Congregationalists, which means that they, they themselves at one time were part of the, the Church of England, and just, they just separated from it. And started forming these these churches that we now they're now called congregational churches. Um, uh, so so that so the, yeah they so the, the the congregationalists were a part of the Puritan movement as well, but then they separated and formed congregate churches that are now called congregational churches. What I find interesting about this historically is like a hundred years after the 
the Reformation that basically started with Martin Luther, that the island of England or Britain would have a very similar story that 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 uh, pushed. You know, uh, there's a you know a lot of people feel that well, not a lot of people. There's people out there who critics who feel that the Reformation didn't go far enough. But the more you start looking at the history of things, uh, then there are some logical steps. That, of course, it didn't move fast enough for us, right? The way we see it's supposed to be. But uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, you a hundred years later in England, you're having a religious revolution going on in its own right that actually was pushing things further. So, you know, taking it a step further than what Martin Luther was prepared to do himself. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think Martin Luther would have been happy had Rome, you know, if Rome would have just stayed like it was, but changed, you, you know, because, look, how is it that Roman Catholicism became the deformed Church that it is. What, what, at what point? At what, now we could say there's a lot of there's a lot of things, but on the scale, what was it that was preeminently deformed there in the Roman Catholic Church that needed to be reformed? And in Martin Luther's estimate, and I would agree with him, preeminently was that they had they had condemned the gospel, they had lost the gospel. There was there was no message from heaven any longer in Rome by which men and women sinners could be they could find a find peace with God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, Luther, he didn't, re- he, in, in the churches that were established under his leadership, in, in many of the liturgical practices, it remained the same. Most people don't realize this, but like Martin even retained some of the the air of, of, of Rome, for example, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luther never you never got rid of that. And you can even find in a lot of Lutheran churches now, not a lot, but you can find the ones that have remained truly Lutheran, they, they still practice some of the, the genuflecting. All the Lutheran churches continue the um, the church calendar that, that was there instituted. It still is followed by Rome and, and things like Ash Wednesday and and all those things. Mm-hmm. So uh, did, did the Reformation go far enough? Well, uh you know, obviously I'm, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Reformed Baptist, and so I reject infant baptism. Um, so I, I would say that it didn't go far enough in, in those kind of things. I, I, I believe that the Reformation did reach its apex with the uh, with the Reformed Baptists. Now, I know that sounds probably kind of arrogant, probably prideful, but if I did, if I believed otherwise, then I would be a part of a different group. <laughs> Understandable. And I'm getting the impression that you just might be right. Uh, guest 3 says, thanks, I'm, I enjoy listening to this guy. I guess he's referring to you, David. So, <laughs> okay. um, chapter 1, let's go into that. Well, I, Hopefully this is a series and you, you're, you're enjoying this. And If it does turn yeah. into that way, then we will be going back to history as we go along with this. So, Chapter 1 is of the Holy Scriptures. This now being, folks, the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And um, so we're going with the first, uh, I guess, you know, is that the proper t- chapter? Is that what it means? Or, or, uh... Yeah, yep. okay. it's chapter okay. one. Okay. Yep. 
Um, let's talk about of the Holy Scriptures. How yeah, there's, uh, what, what is it, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 10 uh, paragraphs dealing with, I, I think I mentioned last time, if I repeat myself, I, I trust your listeners will be patient, but again, we'll go back to the Reformation, although the, the issue that precipitated the Reformation was a question of how was a man, uh, a sinner, man or woman, how was a sinner made right with God? The issue was of justification, that we are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Right? That's what really brought... But, what's, but the real issue behind that is a question of authority. Okay, we have this question on the table. Luther's brought this question on... It's, it's come because of the 95 Theses, and then later the uh, Heidelberg... Um, disputation. The question is this, how does a, how does a man, well, how do we determine? How do we determine this question that's been brought about by by this monk, this Augustinian monk? <laughs> well, of course, Rome says the Pope and the councils uh, determine. They're the authority that determine this question. And Luther said, no, it's, that, that can't, that, that's not, particularly when something is weighty and significant, as our eternal destiny, it has to be on a greater authority because, like he said, you know, the, the councils have disagreed with each other, the popes have disagreed with each other. So, how do we know which who to believe when they, they've disagreed with each other over the centuries? So, the, the so I, uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at here is this the real issue of the Reformation is the authority. What speaks authoritatively in the church? From heaven, and of course, you and I would agree, and most all Protestants would agree, it's the Holy Scripture. So that's why our Confession of Faith starts right there with Holy Scripture and its authority. And I would totally, absolutely agree with that, one hundred percent. So, so let me let me can I read the first paragraph because I think it really brings this out really well. Absolutely, please. The Holy Scriptures is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Now, what we just read there, the, the first part of that first paragraph is this. The Bible is the only, it's, it, it is the infallible rule of saving knowledge and, and how we are to live to please God. But it, it has this provision. The light of nature, of creation and how God works in creation, does reveal God. And it reveals God so clearly and so certainly that men are inexcusable, sinners are inexcusable. Uh, the, the confession of faith is drawing there throughout the Bible, but preeminently from Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that men know by nature uh, God's, his, his, that there is a God. And not only that there is a God, but that he's wise and he's powerful. And this light of nature, uh, the technical term for that is natural natural revelation, 
that God reveals himself in creation, Psalm 119, other places, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, so that's what we've read right there. Therefore, so, so the, scriptures, the scriptures are infallible. Creation does reveal to us that there is a God, but not enough to bring us to salvation. Now continue with the confession of faith. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times, that is, at different times, in divers manners, to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. Now, that's a whole mouthful, and I'm going to tell you basically what we just read. Well, that's a blanket God of all those scriptures is what it is. I hear, I hear Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You can hear the psalmist. You can hear Isaiah. Yes. You can hear the, right. But here's what, we, here's what our confession is saying is this. God revealed himself in different ways, different times, right? He revealed himself through angelic visitations. He had revealed himself through visions and dreams. And to preserve what he had done in revealing himself, he gave us the scriptures. So the scriptures now become a permanent reservoir where God's people can continue to go back and, and discover the mind and the will of God. Uh, so the scriptures are that, that permanent reservoir, that permanent de depository where God has revealed himself so we can always go back and know exactly what God has said, what is necess necessary for us to believe. Now, something I read here, Michael, that's very controversial right now, unfortunately, even among some Reformed Christians, not Reformed Baptists, but some Reformed Christians, and it's this last part, it says that the former ways that God had revealed himself has now ceased. Now, when, when our confession says that, what our confession is basically saying right here, Michael, is okay to bring up the fact that you used to be Mormon? Is that all right? Yeah. And by the way, Dave, you don't have to say my name all the time, unless you want to. Okay. If you're comfortable yeah. with it. <laughs> okay. I like your name. I like okay. your name. <laughs> and it's, 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 an, it's an angelic name. Okay. So, so what, uh, <laughs> Michael At any rate, when we, when we, in our confession of faith, when we, when we say that the, the way he's revealed himself has ceased, what we're saying is this, is the Bible's what we need, the Bible's all we need. Uh -huh. God does know we we do not believe that God any longer gives dreams or visions. We don't believe that there's still prophets today. So we we would discount out of hand um, Joseph Smith. We would discount out of out of hand Muhammad, because we believe that when God spoke to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the New Testament apostles and prophets committed to writing what the church needed to know about Christ as it applied to individual Christians and to the, to, the, to the life of the church, there's nothing left for God to say. There's nothing. God has spoken to us completely, fully, and finally in his son Jesus. And now what we have in scriptures is a full, complete, and sufficient testimony of what we are to believe 
and how we are to live, there's just nothing left for God to say. He's, he has said it all. And yeah. we have it all in the scripture. Amen. I agree with that. That's our Lord, yeah. Savior, finished it all. It's all about him anyway. So he's, he's the, our, our, our last and final prophet. We don't need any more. <laughs> That's right. That he, is, he is the final full prophet who is revealed because not only does he give us the word of God, John chapter 1 says he is the word of God. Yep. And so he is the final revelation of God revealing himself to mankind. And with that, we, are, we should be we should be satisfied. And, now, now, with these uh, Arminus, Arminianists, and uh, there's a better way to say it. Why? I'm not noticing the past few months as I've been really focusing on this again. There's an awful lot of folks out there that dislike the uh, New Testament after, or from John on, basically. The four, you know, the Gospel of John. Uh, they don't like it, uh, but in particular, Paul. What's going on there? What do you, what's your sense of why? You know, because let's face it, you you Reformed Baptists are the you represent well a part of the remnant of Christ. That you know, and that the majority, the vast majority of those who call themselves Christians. Do not like the majority of the New Testament. Although they call themselves New Testament Christians, they don't like the majority of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, they want to you, go back to the Old Testament, or they just don't want to get past John because there's something there that just that, that that's offense. What is that offense? Well, brother, I, you know you you've probably had more of experience in this than I have. Um, of course, I. I um, I have a lot of interaction with with, with um, Muslims and unbelievers, and uh, not so much with other Christians, though. Believe it or not, most of the Christians I have interaction with are other Reformed or Lutheran or other you know Christians like that. Now, I do know from my reading and from what I see on social media and whatnot, there does seem to be. Um, you know this notion of I've, I've I've read about Christians saying I just want to read I want to live I want to for now right now I just want to live out the red letter part of my Bible. Yeah. And what they mean by that is I want to live according to what Jesus says, and they they privilege they privilege the words of Jesus above Paul's, and you know of course that's just a, a that's a trick that goes back to some of the liberalism that pits you know Paul. You know, Jesus had one kind of religion, and Paul had a different version of Christianity. And, of course, we, we reject that out of hand. We believe that the words of Paul are as authoritative and as inspired as the red-letter part of anybody's Bible. We, we, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't even know. We wouldn't even have the red-letter part of our Bibles if it wasn't for apostles. Now, of course, Paul didn't write a gospel, but... Jesus didn't write the Jesus didn't write the Gospels. Other apostles, he committed that to apostles to write, and Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what what Paul writes is as authoritative as what Jesus said, because what Jesus, what Paul says is what Jesus says. Jesus' voice is heard 
we hear Jesus' voice through the right, through the through the penmanship of, of Paul and James and whoever wrote Hebrews. Now, I I suspect one of the reasons that's happening is because Paul is so clear on issues of the relationship between the gender. There's no mistake what Paul says, the, the head of, of, of the wife is the husband, and that the wife is to submit to the husband. And the husband is to love his wife with every fiber of his being, even as Christ loved the church. As you know, that's very controversial right now. That's very controversial. The role of, the, the, here's one, and this hey, I, I, I'm paying for it. Look at I'm a, you know me. I'm a single father who raises my son full time right. by myself. You know what I mean? The roles have totally been reversed in this country, <laughs> and I'm a victim. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, so I suspect <laughs> that that's what some of that is. Is that there has been a major shift in our culture in Western society, and for you, brother. So a lot of people, if they knew what you and I believe or when they encounter it, the only category they have to put us in is, is something like the Taliban. You know, a fundamentalist, extremist. The fundamentalist, exactly. That's all the language. And so when they, when they read Paul and he has those traditional, or that he's very clear about the sinful uh, in Romans 1 and, and other places, he's very clear that sodomy, homosexuality is a sin. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I think people stumble, they, they struggle so much with what he says in Romans because now does Paul consider homosexuality a sin. He says it's sinful, but he also says something else about it. Now it's a sinful, but it's unnatural. This, is gonna, this may sound alarming, and I, and I hope that you're able to follow me, that your, your, your listeners are able to follow me. If a man commits adultery, it's sinful. Mm-hmm. If, a, if a woman commits adultery with another man, it's sinful. And, and, and if they don't find forgiveness in Christ, they'll go to hell. Okay, absolutely they'll go to hell. I agree. But, but I, was one of those, I was one of those men. I did all that. I, before the and, Lord and, got, got a hold of me, I was a man of the world, and I did everything possibly to defend him. And the, Lord, <laughs> the, blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all those things. Amen. Now, now this Again, follow what I'm saying. I'm using the language of Scripture. Although it's sinful, it would still be natural. A man belongs with a woman. Right. That, so it's sinful, but natural. When, when a man lies with another man, according to the Bible, it, it is sinful. But it's not only is it sinful, but it's unnatural. It goes against the very light of nature itself. And, and so when people encounter that in Paul, we live in a time where that just, we can't abide that. I, you know, I've, I've, I've seen things and I've heard things where, well, I believe, I believe exactly about homosexuality that Jesus believed. Now, they say that because you could go through the gospel, anybody knows their Bibles, knows that, that, that Jesus never actually uses the word sodomy. He never talked about, well, he does talk about the sin of Sodom but he never talks about homosexuality by name. And so they, they, they think they've, found, they, they, they've got a clever way of saying that homosexuality is okay. Mm-hmm. It's only when you, when you come to Paul that you get a clear denunciation. And I think, so to answer your question, I think it's that. 
I think it's because, you know, Paul being the, used by the risen Christ as he was in his writings to the churches, that so we get these clear statements about moral behavior, and that's where people just don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear about roles between men and women. Here's one, Michael. Here's one. If you go to any Reformed Baptist church, every uh, it's not just true of Reformed Baptists. It's true of Lutheran Missouri Synod. It's true of the um, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. There's something that we all all agree on on because we read our Bibles, and that's that you only find men who serve as pastors and deacons in our churches. Now that's and you know going back to this thing too with the, the homosexuality, isn't that recompense from God for them? Uh, isn't that the ultimate? What happens when you reject God? Uh, you, it's, just, yeah. you know, it's part of the judgment of God, right? On, on us. Uh, anyway, well, I, can say, I can only say myself. Okay, I'll talk about myself a little bit. You might, you know, this is, I guess, part of this. Uh, not only will it be the London Baptist Confession, but it'll be my Cam's Confession too. You'll get to know me a little more. When I was a man of the world, this is who I was. I was a man that, you know, I was a musician and an artist and interested in women and pretty women, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, fornicating and whatever, and the adultery including, and uh, did things that I deeply regret now. But the time seemed absolutely natural, as you said, uh, yet sinful, and I guess God. And I wasn't thinking that. I was, I totally rejected God after, you know, leaving the Mormon mission. And in fact, it got so bad, I was married to a woman that I met on my mission who turned out to be an atheist and a communist from Portugal who is now half Portuguese and half East Timor reason living in East Timor. So I've had an interesting journey, to say the least. Um, it's really, I guess I had to go through all that for God to wake me up and say, you're really a mess, Mike. <laughs> but uh, you, you know, what I hope you have is, is me. And uh, he certainly has changed me. But, you know, when I look back at my own behavior, because I wasn't thinking about God, because I rejected him, I didn't want anything to do with them. I saw my, and it's interesting. I was even in AA. Okay, I got problems with alcohol, and uh, so I ended up in AA and was an AA guru. And actually, my morals and my who I was, I got worse towards the end. Until one day in an AA meeting, I fell on my knees, and I and they were having an opening prayer, and I'm like, yeah. We're not allowed to talk about you, Jesus. We can't talk about you in this in this in this program. We're not allowed to be here, you know. You're, you and it finally hit me like you're not supposed to be here. It's not a God of your understanding. <laughs> you know what I mean? What they want to push on everybody. Uh, and so, what I'm trying to get at here, and I'm probably doing a terrible job of it, is to say I look at my own fallen state. Because I rejected God, and I see this too, this recompense, that the ultimate outcome for rejecting God is things like becoming a, a, a sodomite, a lesbian, a, you know, it's just a pervert, being a pervert. That's the way of saying it, being perverted. And uh, does that make sense? Did you correct me in it any does. way? It does. No, no, it, 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 it does make sense. Um, here's here's something that we discover. The Bible says that God resists the proud because grace is the humble. If sometimes that resistance 
is that he he will he will throw up roadblocks to to to, to make our lives difficult and hard, and that's what he usually does with his children. Oftentimes, it's he allows us to go. In Hosea chapter four, when he's bringing judgment upon his people, he says Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him alone. In other words, sometimes God. This is again. I know it's not going to sound alarming. Sometimes God punishes sin by allowing us to sin. And as you were saying, Romans one seems to indicate that some of these sins are. They don't. They not only do they call for God's judgment, but they themselves are God's judgment. Mm-hmm. Homosexuality, in particular, is a judgment. It not only calls for judgment, like we saw there in Sodom and Gomorrah, but actually itself seems to be a, a sign that God has judged the people, that he's given them over. He gives them over. I think he says that uh, several times there in Romans 1, that God gives them over to um, practice these degrading things. Now, here's the wonderful truth of, of Christianity. Christ, Christ will save the homosexual. It doesn't. It doesn't take any more grace for God to save. You know, I, I was raised in a Pentecostal home and taught to fear God from my my youth. Interesting. I think I said yes. I think I said yesterday at some point in church. I I never give my testimony because it's really very boring compared to other people. But I I was a wicked sinner. I needed to be saved, and it didn't take any more grace for Him to save for God to save me. Than it, would, than it takes for God to save someone who's right now involved in homosexuality. Perhaps they're a thief. Perhaps they're they're a whoremonger. Um, you know, or perhaps you know. What, I'll tell you what, Michael. Look at Look at look at August. Uh, August. Exactly. Yeah. Look at Augustine. <laughs> he was. Oh my goodness. He was a guy like it myself. I'm like, you know, I found out this out this week. I'm like, oh my gosh. There is hope for me. He was, he was, he, he was yeah, he was you know, in his mid-30s, but he had Monica. His mom, Monica, was a great right. woman of God. But, you know, my reading of Scripture, the, the most the most horrendous sin, you know, those everything we, we've talked about is horrendous, but I'll tell you what, the most horrendous sin is self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. You remember Jesus told the story about the two men who were in the temple to pray. And there was the one who boasted. Actually, he thanked God. I thank God. Thank you, God, that I do these things, that I'm not like that sinner over there. And the other man, he wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast, and he looked up. At, he, he cried out to heaven. He said, that's what he prayed. Literally, it's this. In our, in our English Bibles, it, it translates as healthy, God have mercy on me. But he literally prayed this, Lord, be propitious towards me. Remove your wrath from me. Let there be, as we find out later in the Bible, let there be a blood covering for me. And and Jesus said that man went home justified rather than the guy who was congratulating himself and thanking God for all his righteousness. And it's been my case. I know I know that you you have told the gospel to other people. I know you have. And I have too. And you know, most of the time, brother, most of the time, what I usually get from people is this. I'm not that bad. And sometimes they'll want to parade before me, you know, why they're not that bad. 
see, the, the people, uh, they don't believe they're that bad. Right. It's the, again, it's the self-righteous are the ones who are uh, the furthest from heaven. Sometimes, sometimes people who are so enmeshed in sin, they they know that they're sinners, and if they would just come to the Savior, they would find that that He is both willing and able to save to the uttermost. Amen. That's the only. That's the only Christ is it. There's nothing else. There's no hope. That's it. There's, our Lord and Savior, that's it. That's, there's nothing. Everything else is just rubbish. Now, I, this is just about self-righteousness. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and this is out of deep respect. Dave, from what, well, from what little I know of you, I believe you're a man of God, and you're, you're legit. Um, and so, you know, yesterday we had a, uh, you, well, it's your church, and uh, how do I say this? I'm not, I'm not being disrespected to you, but... Uh, you know, some guy like my, uh, somebody like myself, and I imagine there's going to be other folks that are going to experience this as well. This thing about uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, what happened was, um, if I understood correctly, was, and I'm not calling you self, you that you're self-righteous. I'm saying that you could be uh, maybe misinterpreted or, or accused of this. You know, and you have a right, is you know, it's you know. To determine, you know, how you want to go about this, but uh, you know, it said you asked that uh, those who are not members of our church please don't have to partake of the Lord's Supper. Right. Now, now, I think I have a couple questions. Wait, a is there anything? Is it biblical to deny someone who is, professes to believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ not to pertain of the to deny a person not to pertain of the Lord's Supper? Because they're not part of your denomination. Now, the issue for me is you got to remember I'm coming from a guy who grew up a Mormon. You know, you know what I mean? If that makes any right. sense. So it's yeah. an issue for me, and I'm just saying this out of respect to you. The other thing is, yeah. is this standard in the Reformed Baptist Church, or is it different in different churches how they go about whether or not they allow. Uh, I guess an outsider like myself to partake of the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? No, and, 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 and I totally respect you. And regardless of whether or not whatever happens, I'm still, you know, like I said, you, it's the best show in town. I'm going there with the, my, the rest of the believers. You know what I mean? So my brothers and sisters, regardless, this is just. But it's an issue. It's an issue that that I think that not only that they kind of like confuse me, and I think that newcomers are going to have other issues. You know, they're going to have this issue. It's going to come up. So yep. what? how do we deal no, with this? No. Yeah. First of all, uh, let me very, be very, 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 very clear. I am in no way at all offended. As a matter of fact, um, you should be offended at me should I ever be offended at you about a question. If we can't give a reason for what we believe and what we do, then we should stop get out of the way and let somebody who can defend what they do. Right. So I'm not offended by the question. And as a matter of fact, it is one that we have encountered many times because this church, now this is not true of all Reformed Baptist churches. It's growing. It, it is growing amongst our churches to have the Lord's Supper every week. We, when we constituted as a church, we've had the Lord's Supper every single week. So, uh, we have encountered the very thing that you're asking me about more frequently than perhaps other Reformed Baptist churches. Now, having said that, 
it is the practice of Reformed Baptist churches, every Reformed Baptist church, to do what I did yesterday. Now, what that's called, Mike, technically, the, the language that we use is called fencing the table. Mm-hmm. It's fencing the table. It's not just Reformed Baptists that do this. It, this actually goes back to uh, even John Calvin himself had a major controversy where he literally put himself in front of men who were carrying weapons and said, you will not come to the supper. Really? I never heard so, that one. That's interesting. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've often wondered, I don't know, maybe one of your listeners would know, I've often wondered if that idiom over my dead body, if that's maybe where it comes from, I don't know. But uh, if he, he was acting that way. If he said it or not, that's what he was acting. Now, um, our, our, our confession, our confession. if you go to chapter 20, it says baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances. That means they're ordained. They're ordinances of a positive and sovereign institution. In other words, uh, Christ he, he gave these to the church. Appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. Now, that's, that, that would just be the, start, the starting point where I would make a case. Because here's, really, here's what's really behind the question, Mike. Here's the real, the real question behind this. Does the New Testament require or assume what we would call church membership? Correct. Does, and and I, would, I would make a case that the church does, in fact, the, I'm sorry, the, the New Testament, in fact, there was something, a church membership. There were those who were in, <clears throat> excuse me, and there were those who were out. And that the, that the Lord's Supper is something that belongs to a local body. Now, what we do, this might strike you as kind of odd. What we do at, at Providence Reformed Baptist Church by other Christians, like Lutheran and Missouri Synod, would actually be considered kind of liberal because we actually invite members of other churches if they're guests, you know, because sometimes we'll have people from out of town, or we may have somebody there that's a member of another church, but they're interested in what we believe. If they're a member of another church in good standing, they don't have to be Reformed Baptists. They don't even have to be Baptists. They just have to be Christians who are members of a good, of a, not a good, an evangelical church, a church that's not Roman Catholic. We wouldn't allow a Roman Catholic to come. But if they're members of another church, they don't have to be Reformed. They don't have to be Reformed Baptists. We, we also allow them to come to the Lord's Supper. So we, we kind of have an open communion. But, it, but it, in another sense, it's closed to just members of churches. And um, we do have a biblical defense for it. I'd love to Maybe we can do a whole program about that sometime. Sure. But it's built, it's built upon the larger question, because here's the real question. Is there such a thing as membership in the New Testament? And I think once you see the evidence, once you see the evidence that, yes, there was a membership in the New Testament, and then you begin to understand that these, these local churches functions in such a way that they would, they have the ability to bring people in, to put people out, and that the Lord's Supper is one of those privileges that, that belongs to the local church and to its membership. Just like uh, when you when your son is with you, if you were sitting down at the dinner table, and somebody just happens to come in and they they sit down at the dinner table with you, 
you would say, look, this is this is my dinner table. You can come here only by invitation. This is for my this is for my family. The the Lord's Supper is a family meal. Now I understand. I really understand. Particularly somebody like yourself. You're a born again man. You're a Christian man. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And you're yeah. saying, why 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 can't why am I being deprived this privilege? Well, the real question. Now, you brought this up, so, and you've asked me, and I'm going to be honest. Uh, be honest by the way, I, it turns out that even some of the listeners are like, but this one says, uh, it's the Lord's Supper, not the, the, the denomination's table. There's no biblical proof for the church membership. Judas yeah. partake. Judas partake of the Passover. So, you know, it's something that a lot of us are thinking about, and I'm not judging you, Dave, or the church, because I like you guys. No, no, no. And like I said, it's the best place in town, so I don't know. I'm going to have to deal with this, but, you know, if it's... and um, Well, but, you, know, you know what's interesting? Here's what's really fascinating. One of your listeners said Judas partake of the, the Lord's Supper. It's always... First of all, it never says that. There's no place in the New Testament actually says I'm going to interrupt you one more time. Uh, Guest yeah. four says the majority of historic Christianity would disagree with the comments that I just read from the other guys. So, just to let you know, I mean, there's, it's, you know, it's a mixed bag. You know, it's confusing. There's so, there's, you know, I'm, I'm just, it's a very interesting topic, and it's yeah. obviously it's, a, it's, it's relevant to me, folks, because you, you know, I'm going to be hanging out with David, so I need to understand this stuff. Yeah. So, why don't we, why don't we try, <laughs> why don't we do this? Why don't we try to do a program now? I, I'm happy to continue going through the LBC with you, the one about the Bathroom. Oh, yeah. By the way, we don't have to do this now. We can, as we get to 28, I'm hoping this is going to be a serious. And I hope you I hope you realize what's happening here as we're going through this London Confession. I know it might not be the way you're used to, but it's opening up people to think and to talk about this and to think about matters that we haven't really thought about. I think it's really important, and uh, I got a gut feeling, Dave, as things go on, uh, you know, um, there's going to be more of God's children that are going to come running across gentlemen like yourself and churches like yourself, because there's really that need for fellowship and the need to be a part and uh, celebrate our Lord and Savior, and the world is so apostate at this point. <laughs> the church is yeah. at the body, and this is important stuff. It's you know it might have seemed it might seem archaic to, to others because we're talking right. about a, a confession that happened what three hundred plus years well, ago. But it doesn't matter if it's three hundred. It it is relevant to 2016 as it was back then, especially this. Yeah. Well, some, well, sometimes to move forward, you got to go backwards first. I think so. You know, too. <laughs> yeah, and we and, and and we are a society that we for for a long time we've lost the word of God. There was the dispensational hijacking of some of our churches. I mean, there's just been a lot of setbacks. But I think God is doing a wonderful thing in our land today. I think throughout the world there are there are men like yourself, quite frankly, like yourself that are saying, Look, I want the word of God. I want to know what the Bible teaches, I want to know not only what the Word of God teaches, I want to know what the, the, the true Orthodox Church has actually believed and practiced. Right. So it's a, it's a wonderful time. You, you, just to close off the, the discussion, because I don't want to leave it kind of hanging out there, as we work, as you work through the question of the Lord's Supper, and you start to recognize that the, the question really changes. Now, again, you brought this up, and, I, and, I'm gonna, I want, and I want you to know, the same respect you have for me, Mike, it's right back at you. So I don't mean anything disrespectful. 
But once someone really begins to study what the Bible itself says, it comes to a point when the real question isn't, why don't you allow non-members to come to the Lord's Supper? The real question is, why aren't you, as a Christian, a member of the church? That becomes the real question. Well, and I know so, why I have it because my the Lord has 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 kept me to find that proper place because I've been. Yeah. <laughs> let's face it. And I get, you know, I, I mean, God has, been, has really it. had a hand on me. That's why you and I are talking, and you know, and I mean, let's face it. Uh, you got this little church in the middle of uh, in the wilderness called the Toledo, Ohio, and let's face it. You know, there's. I I clearly yeah. believe that's what's happening. Um, he has literally kept me out of religion. He's been teaching me. He had to teach me. He had to rearrange me. Can you imagine a guy who grew up a Mormon in a Roman Catholic community? Of course, that's what Sylvania really is. Um, who's really worldly? That's just been you know done you know. And here you and I are talking, Dave. If, if God's hand is not in it, I don't know whose hand is in it. Right, right. That's right. Well, you know, let me recapitulate something real quick. When I when I when I put that question as I did, why aren't you in the church? I, I didn't mean I wasn't trying to put my finger, you know, I wasn't poking you in the chest with that question. I'm saying if any any serious student of the Bible begins to go through and ask this question and traces out the logic, the the question really switches really quick to, um, yeah. you know, where where can I find a church to be a member of? And to, to be in, in a covenant community where I'm, I'm loving and I'm being loved and I'm being served through the word and the sacrament, the word and ordinance. And so, again, I'm not, I'm not put off. I love the question. I love the question because it goes, you know, Christ has given us the word and he's given us the two ordinances. And, you know, Michael, it's, it's what's really interesting now, in all of Christendom, there's only one group that's actually named after one of the two sacraments in the Baptist. And um, so we should be we be, we should be prepared to explain why we do what we do and where we find it in Scripture. So I'd love to do a whole program about that if you'd like to sometime. Well, absolutely. We can wait till we get to we can wait till we get to chapter 28, but we didn't even get all the way through chapter one today. No, that's the way it's going to go. And that's okay. If you're all right to spend in your Mondays for a while with us, uh, we're going to grow and learn in a way that uh, we never would. So uh, I know I. Yeah. I mean, this is a point. This is a way. I feel really uh, uh, privileged and honored that uh, folks like you are even willing to talk to me. <laughs> I do. Yeah, you do. You don't have to wait to spend your time with me. And uh, here we are talking. So, and I can tell you one thing: the topic about. Uh, the Lord's Supper is, uh, you can see right here in the chat, that uh, it's really a stimulating thought and um, questions, debate, because uh, it is an issue. You know, here's the issue when it comes down to, this is what I see, David. As God draws us out, like somebody like myself, right, from the world, and, and starts rearranging you and fixing you, and you know, I'm not doing the term, the, the biblical terminology way, but you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah. um, and then you know, then it's like, well, okay, now, now where do I fit? Because it's not right for us to be as even those who in the chat room have mentioned 
uh, islands to ourselves. I don't think God wants that. Um, and we all are in different circumstances. Uh, there are people, you know, like the house churches and all sorts of things. And, but I am where I'm at in my situation, and I have a four-year-old son, and, and I want to be around um, God's children, sons of God. I want to be around them and grow with them, and, and I don't know where else to go. So, I mean, I say that humbly with respect to you and to everyone in the chat room, too. So and the people that are in the chat room, I, I, I think I know most of you, and I respect all of you and your opinions. And uh, we're all growing together, and I've learned a lot from you folks. It's just, you know, we're in our own situation. So, But I think that this confession is fascinating in a lot of ways, that a lot of people, they know, maybe a few people know about it. Most people have no idea about this London Baptist confession. Thing. Let's be honest. And it really is an explanation of how it is, basically, in a way, pretty much, what it means to be a follower of Christ. People might disagree with me on that at certain points, but if you look at it all the way through, it's kind of hard to, to argue things about, like, the Scripture or, <laughs> you know, uh, what, what, is, what is free will and election and et cetera, the sexual calling. All these, as you study, you realize, well, this is the stuff that we were never taught in religion. Man-made, man-centered religion which is the, what the vast majority of us have been given, if, if at all. Do you, would you agree with that? Does that yeah. make sense what I'm saying? Okay. So yeah, I think it, it's, a, it's a really important thing to, um, to talk about this. And um, it's interesting. <laughs> we're going to get a lot of different opinions about this. but uh, um, Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, this is part one of the London Baptist Confession with David Charles. Hopefully, uh, we will do this next Monday, or if I can, I have to arrange something. I have my son that day, but if I can get his nana to take care of him, will you be willing to do it? Watch him for absolutely. Now? Good. I'm, I'm here to serve you, and you're you're listening. And I'll be there. I will be there Sunday as well. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, so, and. Uh, We'll, we'll just we'll all grow together. Anyway, for most important things, grow closer. To, if God draws us closer to him and we learn to be closer to each other as brothers in Christ. That's something that, that I never was given. And, you know, I'm 48 years old, David, and I never had that experience. Now, I know what it's like to be close in religion in a religious institution like a Mormon and go on a Mormon mission and be around a bunch of Mormons. But I never have had that opportunity to grow intimately with brothers in Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I really want that. I don't know what it, I don't, I, God's really pushing that on me. He's like, you know, you have to do something with this and beyond your show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think as you continue to study, not just the the, the Reformation, Reformed faith, Reformed Baptist, as you study the scriptures, it's it's not hard to discern and to discover real quick how important the local church is. You know, the Bible actually says Christ died for the church. He he died for his bride, the church. 
And the church really is that place where we get together. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, they've had some success with, you know, people getting together. The church should be that one place where Christians get together and, and we look at each other and say, I know why you're here. You're here because you're a wretched sinner, but you have found salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a world that hates us, that hates our Christ, that hates our gospel, we need each other. And I, I, I would tell you something too, Dave, not to be rude and enter, enter, but uh, when it comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, this is one thing they have that they got right that the church somehow is a body. I don't think it's necessarily responsible that you have the doors open to that building every night. But the one thing that they have is every night, if you're an alcoholic, you could go to a meeting and fellowship and grow, and more importantly, disciple. Of course, they're discipling them in a false religion, a religion of, you know, but the fact is, that's the one thing that I noticed that that we're missing. You know what I mean? The the religion of the unknown God. Yeah. But I I think, you know, this is one of the things why I think a guy like myself is doing the show and others are doing the show, like what I'm doing, is this desperate need that we have to, to have fellowship, to have this opportunity to talk to someone like you, Dave. Yeah. Does that make sense? Can I read a passage real quick before we, we get we part from each other on this very topic? Sure. Uh, th- this is Paul, Ephesians chapter 4. He says, we're to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him, who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So there is a growth. You, you said it earlier, and I loved when you said it, there is a growth that's available to Christians that can only happen as they're, the language here, as they're a joint, wow. uh, like a joint in the body. You have to be plugged into that living life. Or Again, there's gonna, it's messy, it sometimes it's painful, but that's the what that that's we we don't question the wisdom of Christ. We just submit to it, and that's what He wants us to do. Yeah, makes sense to me. So next, hopefully next Monday, right, Dave? And uh, see you Sunday. I really appreciate you spending. You know, I know, you know, you have a job, a day job, your family, yourself, plus you're trying to you know do everything else that you're doing. I, I respect you, man. I appreciate you really being willing to spend some time with me. By the way, I respect well, I, everybody else in the chat room, too. Thank you for sh- and your comments. Uh, I, I enjoy the time with you, Mike. Yeah, you know, it's good. So, um, we'll get back on this. Uh, it looks, and we'll continue on with the uh, uh, London Baptist Confession. Of faith, 1677 slash uh, 1690, uh, 1689. And Dave, you have a great week, okay? You as well. Thank you, brother. God bless, brother. We'll talk to you later, okay? Bye. Bye now. Bye bye. And everyone else who joined, thank you. Uh, if you want, uh, of course, uh, it looks to me that uh, some of you will be back in the evening, uh, 7:30. We'll be having a. A conversation and fellowship with Mike McGinnis, uh, Jerry, I forgot, Marer, or Marer, something like that, uh, Larry Phillips. These are gentlemen you can 
couple of them you can find on uh, Sermon Audio and uh, well, me talking. So, talking scripture, talking about the Lord and Savior, the answer to all our problems. So, everyone else that joined, thank you. So, I will end the recording now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.